Welcome everyone and thank you for coming. Um, I'm just uh, extending a very warm welcome because um, I'm the director of the German Historical Institute and we have a long-lasting partnership with the Leo Beck Institute for the history of German Jewish, um, uh, German and European Jewry. And we do share with the LBI the interest in the history of German Jews and European Jews, and um, therefore we're very happy to host this lecture series. This term's topic, I think, is especially interesting, um, seeing Jews in art and the relationship uh, between arts and images and artifacts and Jewish culture, and how, um, uh, how do the attempts to control images of Jews in art and in discussions work out. We had some fascinating lectures already this term on photography um, in the new state of Israel, for example. And I'm uh, excited about Tzili Kugelman being here because she brings a museum perspective. And we also have fellows here at the Institute, uh, especially Miriam Pouzus, who work on museum history and artifacts. Um, so I think they will be very interested in hearing you as well. But over to Daniel Wittmann, the director of the Leo Beck Institute. Thank you very much, Christina. And I'm also very happy to welcome you all to the third lecture of this season's Hello. Leo Beck Institute lecture series. The lecture series, as um, Christina has pointed out, which is organized jointly between us, the Leo Beck Institute, and the German Historical Institute. And I'm really very happy to welcome you all in this really most beautiful venue, which I really adore this venue's house. And therefore, but also therefore, <laughs> my, my thanks go really out to Christina and your team for hosting us um, this lecture series and already talking about next year's program. As you know, the topic is seeing Jews in art networks, fantasies, and dreams. And the question of Jewish museums, which means the history of these museums, or the very fundamental question, why on earth do we really need these Jewish museums? And what shall these museums really um, exhibit? All these questions are part of our lecture series such as, I mean, these are really very difficult things to discuss, you know, how shall Jews present themselves to a general audience? And who shall see the Jews in their world? What is really at stake when we talk about Jewish museums and what we put into these museums? These questions used to be very political in the 19th century and they still are very political nowadays. Just debates, actually these are really international debates, linked to the Jewish Museum in Berlin, and especially to the exhibitions which are staged there. Whenever the Jewish Museum in Berlin opens an exhibition, debates come to the fore. Very often, very intense debates. And therefore, extremely happy that one of the leading experts in this field is here with us today, and I'm very happy also to introduce her, Silly Kugelmann. Silly was the program director and the technical director of the Jewish Museum in Berlin. In other words, we have also the Jewish Museum of Berlin here among us, which means actually Silly. And currently, she is the 
chief curator of the new um, permanent exhibition of the museum, which is due to open soon, if I'm correct, right? This spring, if everything goes right. Oh, winter, so we still have some time. Okay. <laughs> they compete with the airport. I hope they will win <laughs> And Celia has created quite a lot of very groundbreaking exhibitions, groundbreaking from different perspectives. I would like to mention some of these, some of her former exhibitions. For example, one which she did in 2006, the German title is Weinkart. Geschichten von Weihnacht und Hanukkah in English. Weinkart, that's a bit difficult to say, but it's obvious. Weinkart, stories about Christmas and Hanukkah. Um, it was extremely interesting, also quite funny exhibition about the challenges of assimilation. A very German Jewish kind of um, question. Weinkart, or another exhibition, 2009. Kosher und Co. über Essen und Religion, in English, Kosher Company about food and religion. Another example, 2013, the English title is The Whole Truths, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Truths. And part of this exhibition of the thrilling installation, Jewel in a Box, um, which caused a lot of Debates, a box, a glass box, and every day someone was Jewish was sitting there for two hours. And when I was coming across the box, could ask this person in the glass box whatever the person wanted to ask this person about Jews, Jesus, and whatsoever. So, and this kind of brings many of the questions we're going to discuss today to the point Jews in the box. Or a more recent exhibition, the exhibition is still on. And whenever you manage to go to Berlin in the next two months, whether they be flexible or not, go to Berlin and go and see this extremely interesting exhibition. Welcome to Jerusalem. The name seems to be harmless, but the exhibition is not harmless. and trigger a lot of very interesting debates. Today, Sid is going to talk about Jewish resilience between self-assertion and self-defense. So this will not be a presentation on Jewish museums after 45, but rather on the emergence of Jewish museums before World War II. And um, the latest museum, the youngest museum before World War II that was opened in Europe was the Jewish Museum in Berlin. And this was the most modern of all Jewish museums in its time. And uh, the orientation of the, this museum, I, I show you another picture, was influenced by the Museum Island, a very new uh, set of museums that was created in Berlin. And the orientation or the role model for this Berlin Museum was not, were not the Jewish museums, but uh, public general museums, because Jewish museums had not so interesting modern uh, perspectives to offer, and that's my topic today. So this is the, the classical Jewish museum before 
the wall. And um, okay, so let's start. My presentation will be about 40 minutes. The illustration have really, uh, they comment vaguely. My text, they're there to make it a little bit more, less boring. So if you're bored with the text, at least you can look at something. The public display of Jewish artifacts begins long before the emergence of the first Jewish museum in Vienna, 1896, and not, as one would assume, within the framework of a Jewish institution. The historical traces of Jewish museums go back to courtly presentations and to Jewish departments in general, state museums long before Jews themselves began to take an interest in their own history of material and visual traditions. In the 16th century, Christian interest in the Jewish tradition grew. In the spirit of a successful missionary work, Christian clergymen endeavored to learn the Hebrew language and to get to know the subject of their missionary work. Hopes of redemption were directly linked to as many Jews converts, Jewish converts as possible. With the conversion to Christianity, the Jews were to become again God's preferred people. At this event, according to the theology of the time, the salvation of mankind would take place. In the 18th century, uh, it was not theology which triggered interest in the, way of, in the way Jews live, but rather the curiosity of daily life of contemporary Jews that were investigated by researchers. Among them were many Jews converted to Christianity who could contribute information from their own experience. Writings... Writings as those by Johann Jakob Schutt, who published his Jewish Curiosities, Jüdische Merkwürdigkeiten, in 1714, or Johann Christoph Georg Bodenschatz, illustrated books entitled The Custom and the Ceremony of the Jews, published in 1749, show an attitude shaped by anti-Jewish resentments, which, however, already included implicitly a demand for the emancipation of the Jews. These authors assumed that the bad qualities of Jews could be relieved by re-education. The diverse and con contradictory interests in the Hebrew language, the interpretation of the Bible in the political and economic sphere of the Jews, as well as the role of the Jews in the German countries, have also promoted an interest in collecting Jewish books and ceremonial objects and present them in exhibitions. The founders of Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, aspired a fruitful link between the maintenance of religious tradition and the devotion to secular culture, a project, as we all know, was ultimately too optimistic. How the simultaneousness of tradition and renewal should be shaped in concrete everyday life was widely discussed. It remained to be noted that it would take more than a century longer until the early protagonists of the Haskalah would discover the significance of the material tradition and the culture considered 
and a culture uh, that were important later for Jewish Museum as a new project of a Jewish self-assertion. Perhaps it can be said, a bit oversimplified, that Jewish collections in general Gentile museums pursued the task of reflecting civic improvement of the Jews, a term used in the German process of granting legal rights to the Jewish population, while the museums served inside Judaism served the development of self-discovery. In my lecture, I do not want to give an encyclopedic overview of Jewish museums during the pre-war period. Rather, I would like to recall some aspects of the intellectual historical framework that led to a positive valorization of the visual tradition in Judaism and thus to the founding of Jewish museums. In the 19th century, there was a heated debate about whether religion was still an appropriate way for life for emancipated Jews. At the same time, one was worried to see the knowledge about one's own history and culture disappear. In dealing with an exhibition of Jewish handicrafts, it was hoped that there would be a modern way to gain access to one's own history with the help of a contemporary format. That is one example of uh, Ephraim Moses Lilien, who tried to develop uh, a Jewish style in graphic art. In 1901, a concerned author of the Zionist magazine East and West advocated this approach. He railed against the unbelievable indifference of some Jewish circles that were not at all interested in Jewish issues and took no initiative to deal with Jewish visual culture. The author was by no means interested in depicting Jewish everyday life. He wanted the opposite, a presentation of those objects of Jewish history which a general audience could be positively impressed by. These included, above all, archaeological findings from biblical Israel and historical and contemporary ceremonial objects. After all, I would like to express a thought that has been moving me for a long time, he wrote. I mean the establishment of museums of Jewish antiquities. I consider such uh, facilities desirable, not only for general reason, but above all because they are suitable means of teaching our young people, of whom after all the future of Judaism depends, it also seems to me unquestionable that the self-confidence of adults would be influenced in the noblest sense. The intellectual prehistory of the emergence of the first Jewish museum in Europe at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is closely linked to the struggle of Jews for public recognition. The ideas of Haskalah triggered a radical rethinking within the Jewish community in terms of education, economy, politics, and above all, religion. By reaching for criteria for emancipated Judaism, the scholars of the Haskalah um, reacted to the epochal change of legal and social equality for the Jews. The process of, of emancipation 
was additionally burdened, additionally burdened by a new type of political anti-Semitism, such as the Hep Hep riots in 1819 in reaction to the Prussian, to the Prussian Jewish edict of 1812. This spectrum of events formed the framework for a first systematic examination of the role of visual arts within the Jewish tradition, even though this area had particularly difficulty in gaining place on the list of relevant topics among the scholars engaged in the Wissenschaft des Judentums, the concept of higher education of Judaism. The improvement of living conditions for Jews in Germany through the easing of access restriction in, in the economic sphere made it possible for them to rise to the middle class in a few decades and for the first time to take up academic employment. This dynamic upswing was paid for by an increasing dissociation from the traditional Jewish way of life and a loosening of the ties to rabbinical authorities. The demarcation, the demarcation from the cursed narrow-minded interpretation of the Bible, the sentence-by-sentence analysis of biblical text by the common Talmud tormentors, as Leopold Zunz called the Orthodox rabbis, had led, according to his opinion, Judaism to a dead end with fanatism and stupidity. Judaism was to be freed from an interpretation of the text that was regarded as being dusty in order to make it compatible with the requirements of modern science. The Society for the Culture and Science of the Jews, Die Gesellschaft für die Wissenschaft des Judentums, here you see a stamp, founded in 1819 by Eduard Ganz, had therefore taken up the course of rethinking the erroneous development of Jewish tradition, as well as promoting cultural integration into the surrounding society. The Jewish emancipation movement endeavored to fathom the tension between presenting its own tradition and adapting to the majority society as the Haskalah put it, self-emancipation. The knowledge of Hebrew literature was no longer widespread at that time. The anchoring in a religious tradition became superficial, so that criticism of Judaism expressed by the Christian side did not miss its effect. Leopold Sunz, who is regarded as the founder of the science of Judaism, qualified the dealing with Jewish heritage as equivalent to the work of an archaeologist. He wanted to save the almost buried Judaism by a scientific enhancement, both against the ignorance of Jewish orthodoxy and, in the same time, against the instrumentalization on the Christian side. The protagonist of this new scientific view were torn between the desire to position the archaeological foundation in the sense of a renewal of Judaism against critical moods who wanted to abolish it completely. The adaption of religious practice in the demand of a time that rejected any segregation and the question of justification of Judaism per se 
was also asked in connection to the role of art in Judaism. According to Christian opinion, Judaism lacked any aesthetic tradition. They were even denied any capacity for aesthetic expression. In his writing on the spirit of Judaism, the German philosopher and historian Hegel held the abstraction of the image of God responsible for the lack of any aesthetic feeling in Judaism. And this is a counter picture to what Jews were said they did not have. For Jews, Hegel mocks, the infinite, sub the infinite subject must be invisible. For all that is visible is limited. A picture of God was stone or wood to the Jews which does not see and does not hear, etc. With this litany, he argues, the Jews seem wonderfully wise and have no idea of God's deification in the contemplation of love and the enjoyment of beauty. Kant and subsequently Hegel, subsequently Hegel criticized Judaism as a spiritual rejection of everything physical and of nature because it creates a God from thought and spirit. He accuses them of not tolerating any other gods beside him in eager monotheism. The result was the historical inability of Judaism to produce artistic works at all. While, many other fields, while in many other fields, Jewish scholars succeeded in meeting intellectual and political demands of the time, for example, in the modification of worship services, the examination of art remained a rather marginal topic for the enlightened Jewish scholars. In the few texts of those authors who dealt at all with the phenomenon of Jewish art, the ambivalence can be felt through the second commandment, which places the representation of man and animal under the reservation of idolatry. They tended to share the view of Christian critiques, critics that Jews could not compete artistically with their Christian neighbor. Moritz Güdemann, a scholar and conservative rabbi in Vienna at the end of the 19th century, who went down in history as the opponent of Theodor Herzl, saw the, saw the rejection of the image as a proof of Jewish spirituality. In the name of the defense of monotheism in its purest form, the arts are set narrow limits, he claims. Even 30 years later, the Jewish art historian Ernst Kohn-Wiener took up this verdict in a review of a book written in 1929. There it says, the Jew does not have such an original relationship to the production of images as he does to scriptures. There is always far too much intellect and the surely existent sensuality of experience of nature almost always suffers the inhibitation of religious image prohibitions. Thus, Jewish painting and sculpture have from the very beginning been subject to narrow limits. Another argument for the reluctance to, be, to deal with the question of art was the general view that it was the task of medieval Christian art to serve spirituality. The Jewish scholars, however, who shared this attitude were convinced 
that Jewish spirituality could only flourish in time of national independence, which meant in biblical times. Accordingly, the period of the diaspora was seen as an epoch of loss of national freedom and was blamed for the decline of artistic achievements. The tendency anchored in the late medieval Christian conception of art to demand artistic perfection as a medium for worshipping the divine promoted those monumental art projects and church buildings that come close to idolatry in the Jewish perspective. In Judaism, images and monuments were not placed were not placed in the service of the divine experience. On the contrary, they all are often aroused rabbinic rejection, which saw the offense of idolatry fulfilled. Here we see the the famous bird's heads, um, Haggadah, uh, for Pesach, for the Passover, Passover holiday, um, that is from the 13th century, and um, the the trick here to overcome um, the question of how to depict human beings is uh, the use of birds' hats or animal hats, and we have other examples of that. Especially in the 12th and 13th century, the response literature shows that the question of when and where figurative illustrations were permitted was a subject of, hated, uh, of, of heated discussions. These quite contrary rabbinic judgments about illustrations also show, however, that illustration culture were common and widespread in Jewish manuscripts. The Jewish scholars of enlightenment were primarily concerned with invalidating anti-Jewish reservations about religion, the Talmud, the law-abiding way of life, and the alleged lack of artistic expression. They saw themselves mainly in the duty to define Judaism as equal to Christianity, which prevented many from dealing with a delicate subject of art. They shared the suspicion that there had not been any art production in Judaism comparably to Christianity because this was prevented by the so-called prohibition of pictures. David Kaufman was the first scholar of the science of Judaism who, inspired by his important collection of illustrated Hebrew manuscript, seriously studied Jewish art. He can be regarded as the founder of Jewish art history. Both his scientific interest in pictorial material and his collection itself were important prerequisites for the later foundations of Jewish museums. Born in Moravia in 1852, Kaufmann studied at the Jewish Educational Institute and at a general university. At the Jewish a theological seminary in Breslau, he was trained as a rabbi, and at the same time, he completed a university degree in natural sciences, philosophy, and oriental studies, and spent the summer 1874 in Leipzig studying the Arab language. In 1877, he was appointed professor of religious philosophy at the newly founded rabbinical seminar in Budapest, where he remained until the end of his life. 
Kaufmann's strategy of argumentation did not deviate fundamentally from the above-mentioned pattern of rejecting anti-Jewish stereotypes. In the case of the so-called image prohibition, however, he considered it important to show that the second commandment, in which God demands to be the one and only one and does not tolerate being portrayed, at no time stood in the way of artistic development in selected areas. He studied the artistic design of Hebrew manuscripts in order to prove that they could certainly compete with the level of Christian illustration art. It was also he who first introduced the term Jewish art into the discussion in a text published in 1878. Until the turn of the century, the reasons mentioned above, the discussion of Jewish art took place outside of the academic profession and was reflected in commentaries and description by enthusiastic dilettants who saw their interest in art as an access to contemporary culture. They wrote exclusively for Jewish audience, especially for collectors of Jewish handicrafts, who attributed themselves to the aspiring Jewish middle class. The door that David Kaufman opened to the emergence of a Jewish art reception leads to the general museum history of the 19th century. The forerunners of many museum foundations were to be found in clerical relics and treasure chambers in which sacral and ceremonial equipment such as carrying altars, monstrances, and sacred textile were presented as early as the 16th century. Accordingly, there were royal treasure chambers with insignia such as thrones, crowns, scepters, weapons, etc., which testify to the fact that such collections were created with the intention of preserving them as signs of national power and greatness for future generations. The large collections of influential families, such as the Medici in Italy, were opened to the public as early as the 16th century. Two centuries later, the Vatican opened its collections to an astonished public who reported on them in travel logs. Even in their days, such collections were a popular attraction for travelers in anticipation of the later tourist interest of museums. The idea of publicly accessible collections became popular in the 18th century, and it is based, among other things, on the enthusiasm for encyclopedic knowledge. Reports about expedition and the development of new trade routes to unknown parts of the world aroused an interest in exotic memorabilia. They also contributed to the emerge of a modern type of a museum. At the same time, the newly established national states adorned themselves with the presentation of their collections, which were supported to present the fame and the greatness of the state in the cultural sphere. The principle was the same for all such museums. Private collections became public only to be transferred to the custody of state museums. Magnificent museum buildings were erected from the 18th century onwards with the aim of impressing the the nation's cultural calling cards. 
Two major national museums in Europe, the British Museum in London and the Louvre in Paris, both founded in the 18th century, were the role model for museums worldwide in terms of their collections, their educational aspirations, and their political significance. At the time of its creation, the British Museum already had 100,000 individual objects on display, manuscript, ethnological objects, coins, works of art. The Louvre was the historical first national museum to open following the revolution. The royal collections were made accessible to people, supplemented by confiscated art treasures of the nobles and clergy and booty from Napoleon from Napoleonic Wars. A Judaica collection acquired by Friedrich August I of Saxony in 1732 must be mentioned as the forerunner of a Jewish museum. The centerpiece was the Temple Salomonis as a symbol of absolutist rule, which was erected in the so-called Wall Pavilion, an exhibition venue of the Dresden Fortress, together with a large number of testimonies of Jewish customs. The Jewish cabinet it was called, thus created, was considered one of the spectacular sites in Dresden to be read in a travelogue of a writer by the name of Mr. Andropoli from, from 1735. The Jewish cabinet also shows all sorts of rarities can be read there. There stands a stuffed man-sized rabbi with his hat on his head, glasses on his nose, and a coat on his back. One sees him standing in front of a desk on which lies the Talmud, which he touches with several fingers. Whoever enters this cabinet for the first time and has not yet known anything about it should swear that there's a really living rabbi, so good and so lively it was made. It also shows all the instruments used for circumcision and other acts for the Jewish service of God. This form of presentation in Dresden, in the Dresden Jewish cabinet, namely to combine information about religious everyday life and a three-dimensional representation satisfied the quite ambivalent curiosity that was expressed in the Jewish particularities mentioned earlier. Century before modern museography and exhibition design was invented, the royal court in Dresden chose a concept of theatrical form of presentation for the display of themes considered exotic. About two centuries lie between the Jewish cabinet and the first Judaica collection assembled by Jews. Civic collections activities only began to a significant extent in the 19th century and concentrated on handicraft products, which was not at least due to the change of the production conditions for commercial art. Unlike the court Jews, who some historians describe as the first Jewish collectors, the 19th century was not about furnishing a house synagogue with precious objects. The Jewish collectors in Germany, England, France, and Eastern Europe had an interest in collecting historical examples of Jewish crafts from their own region. 
as a reference as a reference for their own geographical um, offspring. Furthermore, collecting became affordable in the course of industrialization. The decorative utensils and showpieces produced in factories for the display cabinets and private living rooms also led to a new aesthetic language of form, which was an additional incentive for collecting. One of the first Jewish collectors of Judaica was Isaac Strauss, born 1806 in Strasbourg, the great-grandfather of the famous ethnologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, from whose collection 82 ritual objects could be seen in the Paris World Exhibition of 1878. These objects exhibited at the World Exhibition were no longer presented as objects of use for religious acts, as Felicitas Heimann Jelinek emphasizes in her studies on collections of Jewish ceremonial objects. Now, and this was new, they were shown as examples of high-quality craftsmanship, regardless of their use. The Strauss collection by the way, was to become the basis of the Jewish Museum in Paris, which opened in 1998. For the first time in the history of European Jewry, the Strauss Collection presented a Jewish tradition as an expression of a, of a specific art and culture beyond the ritual utility value of the objects, and that is what they collected. Already one year before the World Exhibition, the Strauss Collection was shown in the Anglo-Jewish Historical Exhibition, which took place 1887 in the Royal and Victoria Albert Hall in London. The exhibition had declared its aim of illustrating the history of the Jews of England, through the presentation of Jewish church art as the introduction in the catalog states. The main interest of the initiators was to confirm their existence in England by systematically documenting the history of the British Jews. Here, too, the organizers relied on the curiosity of the exotic, but above all, on the international ramification of Judaism. Therefore, the French collection of Strauss was also integrated, an important argument in the British Empire, as one can see in the catalogue, where it says, like the jargon of the Hebrew people, their manners and customs, their superstitions and other phenomena of their everyday life, and their art offers more than a dazzling impression of their geographical dispersion and varied and changeable history. For the presentation of this exhibition, a system was developed that is still valid today as a role model for many Jewish museums worldwide. This Jewish system provided a division of the exhibition into a historical section and a space for religion. This exhibition structure uh, can be found in a number of museums and um, it has one area where the festive annual cycle of the individual male is depicted, and in another story, in another gallery, uh, you have manuscripts, coins, and other historical artifacts 
on display. The Jewish Museum in Vienna advertises, advertises itself as the first Jewish museum in the world. It was opened in February 1896 and the, as the first independent museum under Jewish ownership. At the turn of the century, comparable institutions followed in Warsaw, Prague, Leningrad, London, Munich, Würzburg, Strasbourg, Mainz, Kassel, Breslau, and Cologne. Frankfurt am Main and Berlin were added during the 1920s and 1930s. The Viennese Museum, like all the other institutions mentioned above, were financed by private funds and donations, and uh, mainly... Um, focused on a Jewish public. The re a report in the Jüdische Neue Welt about seven years ago listed the collection objects from the 1930s, which I would like to quote in full length since this collection concept has survived to this very day uh, with ge geographical and ideological different emphases. Memory coins... Money coins from the time of the Jewish, from the time of Jewish and Gentile rulers, old written prayer books, Torah scrolls, original pictures showing Herzl as a child, his sisters, parents, letters from well-known men and women, photographs which present modern Palestine and the history of Zionism, numerous candlesticks and menorot pictures and objects from Russia and Eastern Europe, gravestones, splendid synagogue and ritual objects, historical folklore sites, splendid tapestries, and so on. Historical mon monuments and a living room on the Sabbath furnished the, by the painter Isidor Kaufmann in 1898-99. Even though the Viennese Museum had a Specific, a special focus on its strong interest in te, on Theodor Herzl and Zionism, the general collection strategy was to demonstrate aesthetic value and handicrafts and the importance of the literary and musical scientific level of the documents exhibited. For the attractiveness and effect on visitors, Vienna did not rely entirely on scientific focus of the object presented. In 1899, the Hungarian portrait and genre painter Isidor, painter Isidor Kaufmann was commissioned to design a stage for the museum. Kaufmann himself furnished this undoubtedly Kaufmann itself furnished this undoubtedly largest attraction. He brought the furniture for his Sabbath room and decorated it with a total of 122 mostly Eastern European objects. This room installation was also shown at the hygiene exhibition in Dresden in 1911. Kaufmann repeatedly copied it into his own paintings, thus creating a supposedly authentic image of the Jewish everyday life from a museum exhibit. And this is his painting using his museum exhibition piece. Jewish visitors in particular celebrated the parlor as a true reflection of a lost time, as a review shows by an Ukrainian author writing for the Bulletin on Jewish Folklore. 
But the room where the Jewish heart can rely and rest and enjoy is the living room built by Isidor Kaufmann. One is overcome by the melancholic feeling about the never-returning beautiful good old time. One feels moved back into one's own childhood years, and one looks around, looking for the grandparents to wish them a good Shabbos. Kaufmann's Sabbath room has not only shaped the notion of the Jewish day of the rest for generations, it still presents in many museums a Jewish space in various forms. And here I show you some examples how this was copied in other museums, although none of this, I think, still survives because the, most of the museums are redone now. This was in the Frankfurt Jewish Museum that opened in 1988. This is uh, in the Austrian uh, Jewish Museum in Eisenstadt. This was the Jewish Museum Berlin. And this is the latest installation in the Moscow Jewish Museum where not only you see a, the beginning of the Shabbat, but also if you press a button, you hear, um, you hear the, the, the stalls singing. It's, it's a film projection, a three-dimensional film projection, if, and if you press a button or you, you touch the cup on the table, they start to sing. So um, these are the developments <coughs> um, all around the world. The educated Jewish museum visitor from now on perceived Jewish museums and the presentation of Jewish culture as a proof of successful uh, acculturation. They were regarded as proof of a cultural equivalence that could compete with the surrounding society. However, this attitude could not hide the fact that the Jewish departments in the state museums emphasized the exotic of foreigners, while the independent Jewish museums could hardly conceal the defensive character of their institutions. In apologetic terms, the justification for a Jewish museum in Vienna reads as follows. The achievement of the Jews in the field of art and science the antiquities and monuments of past centuries must be collected in a museum which, correctly laid out, supported the entire Jewish community, will offer the most brilliant testimony to the high talent and tireless spiritual aspiration of our people. The Jewish museums thus were given the task of promoting the collective consciousness of the Jewish community the knowledge of one's own religious tradition that had faded into the background through emancipation, acculturation, and anti-Jewish reservation was to be brought back to the conscious with exhibitions and the collection of ritual objects. For Jewish visitors, the museum took on sacred functions by replacing synagogue and replacing worship with the presentation of ritual objects in the museum. Another aspect was the emphasis on the success of Jewish scientists, author, and artists. This trend also continued in post-war museums in the form of photo galleries of Jewish Nobel Prize winners, the renowned politicians, 
or an exhibition of popular and internationally known pop stars who happen to be Jewish. One example of this attitude should be sufficient, especially as you are probably familiar with the contemporary version of these types of exhibitions. And I don't know whether, yes, here is one. Here's another one. And here's a third one. The, th the, 300, the 300th anniversary of the Berlin Jewish community was celebrated in 1971 with an exhibition entitled Achieve Achievement and Fate at the Berlin City Museum. Jewish history was developed in the tension between accomplishments and tragedy with the articulation of a view that it was a particular tragic to have murdered people who distinguished themselves by outstanding achievements. When the National Socialist came to power, all Jewish museums in Germany were closed sooner or later, much of the collection was destroyed, and what remained after the end of the war was shipped overseas to Jewish centers. The Jewish museums created after the war are a completely different story. The exhibits often had to have the function of haunting the present, the present as ghosts of the past. But people in post-war Germany and maybe also all over Europe needed a place to mourn. Today, more than 70 years after the mourning of the victims of the Holocaust is largely a thing of the past. Other topics have come to the fore, which are simultaneously seeking relevance both internationally and in the Jewish society. Jewish museums today are neither concerned with demonstrating collective Jewish creativity, nor with relying on the exoticism of foreign customs, nor with helping Jews to regain their self-confidence. They are looking for themselves, uh, they are looking for themselves that they, they are looking, oh, excuse me, they are looking for themselves that may, they are looking for making them a relevant forum for all visitors on issues of the time in the aesthetic, artistic field as well as the relation to political and historical dimensions. The question will be how convincingly a topic can be interpreted from a Jewish perspective without this being reduced to religious habitus. This applies not only to art, although the question of the extent to which modern art can be Jewish is of particular interest. One of many insolvable questions which are confronted in Jewish museums and nobody has the answer to, but the more exhibitions on these unsolvable questions will be done in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Silly, about your lecture about um, unsolvable questions, <laughs> religious habitus, and the problem of contribution, which really shape the history of Jewish museums, and also this kind of very strange relationship between intimacy and be out, being out in the public. You know, when you put on stage ceremonial objects, it has very much to do with our private lives. It's very intimate and suddenly they're out there for everybody to see. So the, the history of these Jewish museums are really kind of 
link to very difficult contradictions and problems. Well, that's the ceremonial objects, that's not the only... Mm -hmm. The biggest contradiction in, in displaying ceremonial objects as a sign of Judaism is that in Judaism the objects are not important. Mm -hmm. It's the performance which is important, and you can execute the performance like you uh, with... with um, with, with a um, normal glass or with um, with a normal plate, you don't you don't need anything beautiful to do it. It is, of course, it was always um, a big impulse to create such objects in a um, to create them in a nice way to to have uh, interesting handicraft pieces. But actually, they are not important. And so you exhibit something that stands for Judaism, which is not really the essence of Judaism. And this is a problem with the exhibition of ceremonial objects. I mean, a very good example for this is you have seen two of these handicraft objects which are used when the Shabbat comes to an end. And these little kind of castles, you know, they are this size usually. And the ceremonial thing is about the smell, right? things which are inside and they have a very nice smell and they have to be the Shabbat come to an end, but you can't exhibit smell, right? <laughs> Just objects. And, and the point about this, you, you, you use it and you smell. This is the important point, yeah. but of course, how do we exhibit this? The problem with, uh, or problem with, it's a fact that uh, Jews north of the Alps Europe, <laughs> not not in Palestine, not not in the Holy Land, they have they had no relation anymore uh, to the place where they originally came from. We don't know whether there was a, uh, an architecture that can be called Jewish. We don't know how the items looked like. So the role model for everything that was created uh, for the Jewish use was a Christian environment, mm -hmm. and it was copied when. The Jews saw what the Christians had, and they say, "I want that too." So it was observed, it was observed, and uh, absorbed, and it was Judaized, Judaized. So what you what they found in their uh, social environment was taken into Judaism, and was reinterpreted with a Jewish text. And this is actually the interesting thing. But unfortunately, very few, or I don't know any museum, who does exhibit that in this uh, relationship. And so you still can see um, the main idea is, is to present uh, Jewish artifacts as, as quality work that can compare, instead of taking uh, the essence or the history, how they came about. The same is true for book book illustrations. Mm -hmm. So this would be much more interesting, I think, than just to put them in a vitrine. And as we all know, these ceremonial objects, nobody really wants to see if you don't do something with it that makes it interesting. Did you ever once try to, to tackle this problem with your big exhibition about rituals? Rituals and memorization? Well, in, in many, many, many uh, exhibitions, rituals... Uh, will be a part. If you make an exhibition on circumcision, of course you also will show how ritual circumcision will take place. If you do an exhibition on the relationship between Christmas and Hanukkah, mm -hmm. 
Kreismuka, uh, which is called in the United States, um, you, you, you go into this field, but then it, it's a different focus. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a display, like a presentation of these very nicely shining silver objects mm -hmm. that um, don't tell people anything. And, and, and I would say not even to many Jews, they, they don't speak to Jews either. Mm -hmm. Uh, was sort of a sort of three-part question there. Um, in the 1870s, there was the foundation of the Deutsche Palestina Verein, so they had the objective of exploring Palestine and, and mm -hmm. environs around there. Was there any sort of connection between the Jewish museums and that organisation? Well, as I said, in Vienna, yes. In Germany, Zionism before 1933 was not very popular. Uh, it was an issue of the youth movement. And uh, a lot of, uh, most of the adult, I mean, there was a Zionist organization and they worked, they collected money, uh, they also um, went uh, on trips to Palestine, to, to the Jewish settlement in Palestine. But in, in Eastern Europe and Vienna, it was very popular, and, and that was integrated very strongly into the Viennese Jewish Museum. In the German Jewish museums, this uh, Palestine didn't play, and Zionism didn't play any big role. The opposite, people were afraid of being accused of double loyalty. And only after uh, the Nazis came to power, that picture changed. But it was, Zionism in Germany was basically a youth movement. About Zionism per se, it's just that they were, it was a scientific exploration, had the Palestine Exploration Fund in the UK. And uh, most of these people were, were German Protestants in the Palestine of that land. But I just wondered whether there was any import of, um, of just artifacts being brought back from Palestine to be exhibited or anything like that. Not really, and uh, that's why it was important to me. Maybe I can go back. To the beginning, I, the first pictures of the Berlin Museum is very important, and I'll try to find it very quickly. Where you see this has nothing to do with the, with the yeah, this has nothing to do. If you see the scenery and the aesthetics of the room, this is far, far away from uh, what Jewish collections at the time looked like. So the German. Um, the German way was to connect to the modern art museums in Germany, and they, they, the, the, the pictures you see here were either um, um, done by Jewish artists or they portray Jewish people. But uh, so, um, but there was no, and, and you see from the aesthetic, no big interest to go back um, to Jewish life in a more narrow sense. Thank you very much, Lily. It was very interesting, and you've added a lot of sort of detailed gap, filled with some of my gaps as well. That's really, uh, really interesting, amazing, really nice pictorial material as well that I had not come across. And I, I actually just wanted to maybe add, it's not really so much a question, but to add to what the gentleman asked in, in the Anglo-Jewish Historical Exhibition, which was also one of the forerunners, as you've mentioned, of these uh, museums. Palestine Exploration Fund yes. had quite a big part, yeah. didn't they? So um, at that time, but they were that was slightly different from the Jewish Museum, which came about 
much later uh, in the 1930s and that would then focus yeah. very much on Judaica. Mm -hmm. And that was more encyclopedic approach. And, uh, and since um, the biblical time was regarded as the uh, time of high identity of, of Judaism, and the diaspora was sort of looked at in a more pessimistic or skeptical way, um, in some exhibitions, this took me. The first exhibition after the Holocaust in Germany, created, of course, not in a Jewish venue and not by Jews, but by um, a group of archaeologists in Cologne, uh, was only artifacts from um, the biblical Palestine. So the, the picture of Judaism in Germany after 45 was a picture of Palestinian Judaism. So that comes into the game again. Uh, I wonder whether the, some of the great Jewish collectors before the war, like James Simon, took an interest in, in uh, collecting Jewish or whether or not. No, he was not so much interested in Jewish items. Uh, these big collectors who happened to be Jewish were part of the big collecting scene and they financed excavations in, in special places in the world and um, there are theories, and uh, I'm not, I think I'm not the one who can really uh, go into that. Um, there are theories that they um, were interested in, let's say, Greek and Egypt findings in order to sort of have a view in the area but not deal with Judaism expressively. They didn't, uh, they didn't, um, they were not interested in Judaism at all. The opposite, they wanted to be a part of the community of sponsors of big um, archaeological expeditions. Yeah. Can I ask, why do you think that German uh, museum, the Berlin Museum, was so markedly different? Was it only their first curator, which I heard had a very active role, or was it also another museum tradition, museological tradition that you had? Well, first of all, this Berlin Museum was very late. It was opened, uh, that's also curious, in 1933. So it, it opened very late. And it had fantastic examples of how a modern museum looks like. And I think uh, there is a basic consideration maybe of Jewish museums today. Um, where do I look to? Where do I get my inspirations from? From the museum world or from the Jewish world? And that makes, I think, a big difference. And you have both in, in the in the. In, in the orchestra of Jewish museums, you have uh, both. And I think in Germany, because the development was rather late, also the Frankfurt Museum opened um, in 1928, so it was also quite late. Uh, they wanted to be a part of the, of, of the national uh, museum world. Frankfurt was a bit more, um, let's say, um, still interested in showing a very Jewish view 
in the museum. So, but it was founded, and this is also interesting, the originator of the Frankfurt Jewish Museum, which opened in 1928, was also a Gentile, not a Jew. So the Jews came in reaction to Gentile um, interest in Judaism, and this is, I think, an interesting fact to notice. They were not the originators. I think in the um, early 20th century in Munich, um, the Islamic art terminology um, started to be used because there was this exhibition and later all these collections popped up and turned into museums. So I wondered if there's a parallel between the term Islamic art and Jewish art or Jewish museum. And the other question I had was the response from the religious players and the religious community was, towards what you um, explained about the role of the museums as uh, being Jewish as culture more than religion, whether there was opposition or whether there was support. I think the first religious group who um, typically, actually for the group, who gets interested in also exhibition are the Lubavitcher because they're missionaries and they, they are using every instrument to fulfill their mission to convert Jews to Judaism. The religious, uh, the religious side has no interest whatsoever in worldly issues, and the museum is a worldly issue, so they're not interested in. What you are mentioning about Islamic, uh, the Islamic perspective, this was very true in the 19th century by scholars who were the first Orientalists uh, in academic life were to be found among Jews. It's not so much in respect to art, although Islam has a similar um, reluctance uh, to deal with art, and that's different in Persia, where you have a lot of art, or in India. Um, but in, in the, the Arab world, uh, there is um, a much stronger prohibition of art, and I don't think really that there's um, something mutual. It is there, there is a strong relation in the academic study of um, languages and culture in Oriental, in, in Muslim, um, in the Muslim world. That is true, but not in artifacts. I would like to come with a question you mentioned in your lecture that two, two kind of um, points which seem to be quite important for, for let's say, pre-Nazi Jewish museums before the 1930s. One is this, the Jewish space, and then you quoted also a review about the Jewish space, and it was really remarkable that the reviewer thought that going into the Jewish space is his, his, his or her grandparents. So it's gay you're looking backwards. And the other thing which was so important, or was an important part of the objects, were the things, these objects which referred to a past which is reader, which is even much, much, much more further down in the back, Palestinian biblical Jews. So was this kind of the gaze looking backwards? Mm -hmm. Well, museums tend to look backwards because they exhibit <laughs> material culture that uh, is sort of belongs to the past. 
But what is interesting that uh, national museums and Jewish museums, I would call in some respect a national museum or national museums, they are inventing past. Mm -hmm. They invent tradition. It's about inventing traditions. And uh, if you invent a tradition, then you create a sentimental positive picture of something that in real life, I guess, was less romantic. Mm -hmm. uh, Eastern European Jewish life is not known for its cozy sides, the opposite. But uh, placed in a museum, um, then you create um, a sentimental look back. Uh, and the interesting thing is um, that um, the discussion in cultural studies and sociology about spaces started in the 90s, when I remember. It's a very young idea to look for spaces. Um, and um, this Kaufmann space at the Jewish Museum in Vienna was avant le lettre, creating a Jewish space that made a career in every Jewish museum. And there you can see the invention of a tradition that an artist creates a room and then copies it in his paintings and thus sort of... Uh, um, thus um, arguing that this was a reality and as a matter of fact it only existed in a museum. And uh, this career of a Jewish space I think is really remarkable and it's connected to Sabbath, to Shabbat and if you try to understand or if you come to think um, is there anything Original. I mean, no culture is it's an original culture. It, it, it's a fusion of many things. But if you come to think what might be original in Judaism, it is the Shabbat, as the matter of fact. And uh, that was copied then by others, uh, by Christianity and also by Islam and um, by the world religions. And so... I think it's interesting that it is the Shabbat that was mm -hmm. put in the center of things and not something else. And uh, the uh, invention of tradition goes in many, many directions, mm -hmm. but this Shabbat room, I think, is a really interesting case study. I mean, do you think that it is some kind of a problem in the 21st century that what makes... Jews to be different, original is the Shabbat, which is something which is linked to religion, right? That's my first question. Do you think, that, that, is this a problem for us? And my second question, maybe linked to this, your idea about the Jew in the box, is this some kind of an answer to this? No, the, uh, when we did this exhibition, what you always wanted to know we collected questions visitors asked in a Jewish museum. And we said we are going to do something with these questions. And um, then we had the idea, if people have so many questions, why don't we create a vitrine and put a person there? But, and, and in the beginning, I thought nobody would volunteer to, you know be an artif a living artifact in a vitrine. But we had so many applicants that we had really a problem um, to say no to some people. But then something very interesting happened. Since you had a person in a vitrine, and the idea was people could ask this person, what does it mean to be Jewish for this specific person? 
the fact that this poor person had to sit there for hours without being able to escape, the visitors took advantage to tell their own stories to this person. They used this person as uh, somebody they could, they told their story. And you had Germans who were, who were perpetrators in the Holocaust and, and all kinds of really uh, very strange situations. So what we didn't expect in the beginning, uh, we didn't reach our goal, but we reached something else with it, which, which uh, was an interesting, uh, unexpected event, actually. It was hardly criticized because people compared, compared it with these uh, oriental shows in zoos and, and, and in, 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 um, in world exhibits. And this was not, of course, nobody was dressed up there. We didn't imitate anybody. So that was very hated hate very greatly rejected by uh, by uh, cri critics and loved by the visitors of course because as i said they took the advantage of the fact that he couldn't escape or she couldn't escape and what about the shabbat well, what was that again you doubt that what you pointed out is what makes from a Museum point of view, Jews definitely in a positive sense, which means they have some kind of originality to Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Is this a problem that religion makes us? Well, I, I think um, when, when you work in a Jewish museum and you ask yourself what kind of picture of Judaism and Jews do you want to submit uh, to a general public, and everybody in a Jewish museum has one credo. We don't want to create uh, stereotypes. You can't do that without creating stereotypes. But the best, you, you can't, I mean, that's completely impossible. But what you can do is create stereotypes and demolish them in the same time, mm -hmm. which is very difficult. But it's an illusion and religion belongs to it. I mean, you, you have, of course, most of the Jews in Europe are secular Jews. Mm -hmm. They know not more about Judaism. Many know not more about Judaism um, as a general uh, Gentile visitor. Um, and with, but without religion, there is no secular Judaism. There are secular Jews, but there's no secular Judaism. You can't, let's say, create a school curricula in a Jewish school on secular Judaism. That's impossible. So in Judaism, religion and ethnicity belongs together, even if you don't want to have neither. So this creates a tension that you have to deal with. In a museum, you present something that you know most of the Jews maybe in the country a museum is don't live according to these rules or have a, a variety of ways of, uh, of leading a Jewish life. But you can't do that without religion. Religion is, and uh, Judaism is, to my understanding, it's not a religion. It's not a set of beliefs in God. It is a performative, you, you lead a Jewish life and you do it, if, if you live according to the law, you stand up with it and you, you go to bed with it and you get, you are born with it and you die with it. And some things stay even in a secular version. And this, uh, is, and this one can deal also with in the museum. 
uh, one can test it out and, and create exhibitions that uh, you ask, I don't know, 10 Jews how they live as Jews, and you, you can see what, what remained in the secular world from traces mm -hmm. from religion or ethnicity. But uh, you, you never, a museum is not a picture of real life. A museum is an artificial venue and a completely artificial environment where the curator creates a world of its own. And it's not a copy of the real world. And if it would be, it would be very boring. Why would you go to a museum that presents to you what you have in your daily life in the subway while eating or whatsoever. So the interesting thing is the creation of a completely artificial environment with a statement. It um, can be an artistic statement, it can be a historical statement, a political statement, but it has to be a world of its own. I heard you say that the Strauss collection, having first been exhibited at the Paris World Exhibition, then became the foundation for the Paris Jewish Museum in 1988. Is that correct? I haven't. Can you speak? Yes. So the question was: Was the the Strauss collection, which was first exhibited in Paris in 1878, I think you said, did then become the basis for the Paris Jewish Museum? in 1988. Did I hear that correct? Well, in um, w which museum are you talking about? The, the, I, think you meant, I think you mentioned the Paris Jewish Museum. In Paris? The Paris Museum, yes. The, Paris, the basis of the Paris Museum was the collection of Strauss. Yeah. That's right. And so I, I was wondering, what, what, where was it? in the 110 years in between? And, or could you elaborate a little bit more on, on French? I'm, yes, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but it might have been in the Musée Cluny, which is in Paris, a fantastic museum of medieval art. And I think it was there, uh, storage uh, during the war. And uh, so that was... Um, what you, in, in German you say ein Glücksfall, I don't know how to say that in English, that you had a collection. Uh, the other museums that were created after the war had actually nothing. They had to start a collection. Some of the museums had a little bit uh, that, let's say the Frankfurt Jewish Museum, got a collection from a family that was confiscated by the Nazis and uh, were given to another Frankfurt museum, so it was given then to the Jewish museum, but there are not too many objects. So the Jewish museum had to create the new collections, which is tremendously difficult, because what was left in Europe um, is um, either very, very expensive, and all these new museums are heading for the same objects, and, and on the other hand, um, that created a big industry of forgeries. I think every Jewish museum could be an interesting exhibition of forgeries in their collection because the market, um, the market for this museum is not there. 
and but since the museum buy a lot of stuff, um, there's a forging industry, and we have by now some experts who are uh, tracing these forgeries. So we, uh, in respect to collections, Jewish museums in Europe have a very big problem. And the, and the French museum had the big um, advantage of um, having a, a really major collection at its hand. And I think the London museum too. Um, and I no, don't know too much about the London collection, but here we have somebody who knows it. <laughs> Well, we also had the first, um, uh, we came about in 1932, and mainly also to preserve some collections uh, and preserve them from uh, um, going abroad, being sold abroad. Uh, and the first collection were Judaica collections. Um, there were, it was the mayor of Richmond, the Howitt, who collected. And so they had already collections, for instance, by the 1930s, so the first 30 years or so of the 20th century, they assembled these collections. Um, some were first on loan and then they were later sold. But, uh, yeah. Remember there was one um, exhibition before the museum opened, I think two years before, um, there was a big exhibition of Judaica Selfridges. And I read, and I've not investigated it properly, but I just found a little notice in the newspaper. Um, and it was shown in the, it said, in the Hebraica um, uh, department of Selfridges, of the Selfridges bookstore, which is like, Amazing. <laughs> and the Prague, of course, the Prague Jewish Museum had a very big collection that was compiled during the Nazi area under the control of the SS. But as somebody who researched that now, it was not, like many people believe, a museum that the SS had put together, but they sort of allowed the Jews in Prague uh, to collect and um, collect these materials from Moravia, from the countryside, and this was the basis of the Prague Jewish Museum, which is not a traditional museum, but a quarter of the city. And if you enter this quarter of the city, you pay your entrance fee, and you visit not only museums, but the Jewish quarter is the museum. You know, I really take your point that Judaism or Jewish life is much more about performance than about religion and ethnicity. And also take your point that um, when you create exhibitions about Jewish performances, you also have to invent something, right? It's not about real life, it's about invention. Um, the question is, what is an invention? Is this about artificial shoes? Or especially when, 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 when we see the discussion about Krakow. You know, when Krakow was accused of producing fake shoes, kind of. So where's here the borderline? Or is there a borderline at all? Or are all kind of... Well, you might say um, German Jewry, Austrian Jewry, Western European Jewry is saved that fate because it didn't develop an ethnic Judaism. So this was only this happened only in Eastern Europe. So it would make no sense whatsoever to create a Krakow uh, analogy anywhere in Germany because Jews didn't differentiate by dress, by language, by music. And um, now, with 
the Lubavitchers coming all over Europe, and I, I'm going to bet with everybody that in 20 years of time there will be no other Jewish congregation in Europe anymore except Lubavitch. They are taking over everything. They are dressed like Eastern Europeans, so Eastern European dress style might become a fake ethnic a fake Western European ethnic identity. I don't know what will happen. But uh, since there is no Jewish ethnicity in Western Europe, you, this will not happen. The opposite, if you have, and that's, I don't know whether this is only a German issue, if there's a TV production or a film depicting a Jewish, German Jewish topic, and they use Eastern European Jewish music because they know it sounds Jewish, it's wrong. It was never, ever used in Germany. And the Zionist youth movement uh, had uh, songbooks. They translated German student song into Hebrew and into German, and they sang these songs. Uh, and they had a, a chapter in the end, maybe two pages in the songbooks, uh, with the title of Jargon Leader. So uh, these were Yiddish songs from Eastern Europe that the youth movement took up as an authentic piece of authentic Jewish culture, but it has nothing to do with Germany, with France, with Italy, and Great Britain, except from migration histories, of course. For extreme interesting talk and also your comments about performance, authenticity, and what does it mean um, to set on stage a Jewish life today? It Thank won't you very much. Go away. <laughs>